D-Nice is in high demand to DJ parties for the biggest stars around the world. And he's on a first-name basis with all of them, including a couple he now calls Barack and Michelle. This is his unlikely story. Like, where I kind of teared up, you know, like, like, wow, like, I really, I did this, you know. And Not in your wildest dreams of never, such a thing possible never. or probable or likely in any no, way. No. Kid from the Bronx, born in Harlem, kid from the Bronx, in the South Bronx, tenement apartment building. Grew up sleeping in the living room with my great-grandmother on one sofa. I was on another sofa. I'll never imagine meeting the president, the president of the United States of America, and to actually that, that he would actually know exactly who I am. Not to mention a who's who of America, by yes. the way. You, you've DJed for everybody. Name them. You've DJed yes. their show, their party. What, what's your mom think of all this success? Hopefully my mom is proud. She's here right now. Today is her birthday. So and thanks um, for sharing your son um, with his mom, by the way. Look I at mean, her. honestly. <laughs> She's more happy to meet you, man. She doesn't Thank, care. <laughs> thanks for sharing your son. No, but um, you know, hopefully my mom is proud, you know. I mean, she actually I know she is. She sends me that message every day. I'm not even lying to you. Every What's she single saying? day my mom is always like, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're my dear heart. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the same message almost every day, and it still feels good. You know? Everybody like, calls you D-Nice. Does she call you that, too? No, 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 no. no. But she, she just calls me Derek. That's it. You know? And, um, the name she gave. Yeah, absolutely. So proud to be her son. I looked at your schedule for February. It's a punishing schedule yeah. for a mere mortal. I was trying to tally it up here. 18 events, 15 days, seven cities, multiple trips. You even know what city you're in right now? It was. I woke up this morning. No lie, on the plane, I took the red eye from L.A. and almost forgot that I was on the plane. Right. And I woke up, I was like, feeling real comfortable, turned over, and there was Mr. Cooper, Mark Curry, <laughs> looking at me, laughing. I was like, damn, bro, I forgot I was on this plane. <laughs> that probably happens all the time. You don't know where no, you are. No, but it's, it's a great feeling. In a good way, I mean, right? Look, if someone, I'm not sitting here with a band. I'm playing with two turntables. You know, I don't produce music anymore. I'm literally playing pre-recorded music. And, you know, when you can go on a road with a Chappelle or you can get a call from the Seinfelds or, you know, playing, you know, the inaugural ball or the Oscars after party. Like, listen, man, I, I, I'm extremely happy. I don't take any of this for granted. I think about it every day like, hey, one day they're going to wake up and they're going to get the joke. Be like, <laughs> wait a minute, we've been using him all the time. You know, but for right now, man, I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying But you're actually kind of good at this. The other day, there's a story you tell about you're doing, I think it's Dwayne Wade's party at the NBA yes. All-Star Game. And Pat Riley steps up to the mic and puts a little pressure on you. He puts some pressure on me. What, what did he want? So Pat was like, he went on this long tangent of, of this story about Dwayne. And to be quite honest with you, I wasn't even paying attention. I mean, it's Pat Riley, you know, Magic Spoke, all these guys, well, Chris Paul, but but uh, Pat was going on and on and on, and I was sipping. I was like literally drinking a, a vodka tonic, and I was sitting there, and all of a sudden he said something, something. All I heard was DJ Last Dance, and if you're really good, you'll know what I mean by that. Whoa! But I didn't. I wasn't even paying attention to him. I just looked at everybody else, and they all started looking at me. And I was like, <laughs> and then the guy was like, he's talking to you. I was like, oh me? Oh. So by the time he went through something else and like he was like, let me see if you're really good. Come on. We are Serato. Now, now, had it been with like old school Grandmaster Flash, Crater Records. Oh, I probably would have been thrown off because all I had to do was just type in blah, blah, blah. 
He was like, let me see if you're one of those DJs that you need a second to download it because you don't know what song it is. Wow. And by the time he said that, damn, I threw one down the summers. Last the dance. went crazy. Last dance. And he was like, oh, he started dancing. And it was it was a great moment, man. It was a great moment. Dwayne was so happy. Thank goodness for iTunes. Thank goodness for iTunes. I mean, Thank goodness for Serato, actually, man. Right? You had a whole yeah, digital list. Yeah, right. just, I mean, just ready. I mean, I, I, any, I, mean, I walk around with like 30,000 songs on my computer e- easily, about another 100,000 on my other computer. And then I carry like a backup hard drive, you know, in case something goes wrong. You, you know, someone's paying a lot of money. Not just to me, but like to produce an event, you know, like doing your wedding. Mm-hmm. You spend half a million dollars on your, you know, hopefully. You I, I didn't do. I didn't do all that. I don't know okay. what kind of weddings you're going to. <laughs> okay, so you spend fifty thousand dollars on your wedding. Maybe a little more than you that. still want the music. The music is actually outside of your nuptials, but the music is what people are going to remember. That feeling of everyone dancing and feeling good together. So the DJ is actually the centerpiece of every event. No matter how you want to look at it, if the music is horrible, you're going to walk out of that event like, hey, it was great seeing people, but hey, the vibe was off. I'm, yeah. you know. But if the music is good, the music feels good, you will remember that party. So to me, it's like there should be no excuse. I should always be prepared for any situation that may go wrong. It really is about you at the end yeah. of the day. At the end of the day. Yeah. No ego, but it's really about whoever's playing that music. You you play everywhere. You were at the the Kennedy Center yes. in D.C. like multiple times over the past multiple several times. weeks. Yes, I right? played um, the Mark Twain event. Um, then I played Alvin Ailey's sixtieth. Um, right. I'm actually at the Kennedy Center tomorrow. They actually gave me my own night, so I'm playing straight D Nice party, a D Nice hip hop dance party at the Kennedy Center, which was just crazy to me. Like, <laughs> wait, you want me to do that? And then they just um, they called me the other day and asked me to do the um, Kennedy Center Gala, which is coming up in April. Apollo so, Theater in December. Yes, I played the Apollo with Teddy Riley, but I've also been playing the Apollo for for years um, for the Apollo Spring Gala. Mm-hmm. So roughly around eight years. And that's probably my favorite party ever because the Apollo you. First of all, it's the Apollo. I grew up down the street. I was born 10 streets away from the Apollo. So it always feels like home. And they, um, and just when you're in that building, it's, I mean, it's music. It's like legacy there. Like to be able, you know, work with John Legend there, like to stand on that stage where so many artists that I grew up loving. The Jackson Five, Aretha Franklin, just name anybody. Yeah. Man, David Bowie, you know, they've all been on that stage, you know. And there um, you were. And I'm uh, there I was, man, playing there, you know. Top five venues, Apollo Theater. Oh, man. What else? Okay, so top five venues. Apollo Theater is definitely in there. Um, man, I love playing in Atlantic City. I've been playing at the Borgata for like 10 years, almost 10 years. What about that's it? amazing. At the... Um, at the Borgata Casino, there's a venue there called Premier. But before it was Premier, it was, it was called, um, gosh, I can't, rem- I can't even remember the name of it. But anyway, anywhere in that building, it's always because you have this mix of like Philly, New York, Central Jersey. Way different crowds. Mm-hmm. So New York, hip hop, Mob Deep, 50, Central Jersey, David Guetta. Then you have the Philly crew who you can go anywhere because they love music. So you can go Meek Mill. You can go to Spenders or, or, or you know, uh, um, 
you know, some Teddy Pendergrass in yeah. the middle of a hip hop party. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. All of that. Wow. Because they love music. So, like the other day, I played um, I played at the uh, Borgata in the middle of this crowd. And trust me, I'll tell you, it's probably 10% African-American. I threw one before I let go. And I never played that ever in a big venue. Frankie Beverly? Fra- Frankie Beverly. Yeah. And this whole crowd went crazy. And wow. people were singing. That's the power of music. Didn't matter what race they were. They knew the song. And they just sang along with it. It was great. Did, so, you, did you cut the sound and let everybody sing? Oh, to- totally. That's like <laughs> at the Before I let you... Go. <laughs> you gotta do that. It's black barbecue music. <laughs> you have to. So those two places, okay. um, I love Marquee in New York. Uh, Marquee is awesome. It just feels good. Um, there was a place in New York City called Cielo. Cielo was um, one of the places where I just love DJing because it was the room was built by a DJ, and the sound like old school DJs would be there. You know, like Lil Louis Vega, mm. Clark Kent, Tony Touch, and the sound was just the room was built for a DJ and that was great. And then the other, my fifth place, which is going to be like, I've only played there one time. So random would be the white house because of what it represented. Of course. And I'll tell you a quick story. That's not random at all, by the way. No, I'll tell you a quick story, man. Like I was playing there for, for one of Barack's last parties, second to the last first name basis. Now I'm sorry, president Obama. I'm not really on the first name basis, but unless he's in front of us, Hey, what's up, bro? <laughs> I have funny stories about that too. But anyway, so playing this party and I was keeping it sexy. I mean, we're in the White House, we're in the East Room. Like, what do you play? Like, Slow jams or what, what no, are you playing? Maybe sex. Mike Jackson playing okay. Lil Madonna, some Stevie Wonder. Okay. And Naomi Campbell came over to me and she said, D, you're not DJing like yourself. Like, why don't you play the way you play the Dave's? So a week before, we were all in Yellow Spring. So it was like, I hate the name drop, but I have to tell you who was there. It's a Q-tip. It was Beth Ann Hardison, um, Bradley Cooper, um, uh, Jerobi from Tribe Called Quest, David Blaine, Naomi. We were all in Yellow Springs supporting Dave, Dave Chappelle. Um, Dave does like a give back to his neighborhood. So he brought us all out there. A DJ it was great. But in that part, I played everything. So fast forward a week later at the White House, I was just keeping it sexy because there was part of me that was like, wow, this is this is the White House. Wait, wait, wait. Are you intimidated? Are you trying to be respectful? I was trying are to be you respectful. Restraining yourself, you're trying to be I was being you know, respectful under control. For, for for legacy purposes. Uh-huh. So like when you have like when you DJ for for president, you could play a record and just say if if he's walking down the hall and you're playing like this random record and someone's recording him and it's like you're playing NWA bitches and, <laughs> and excuse my language, mom, but, but but the president is walking down the street. Like, I mean, down the hall, like that's not a good look. Not so going to work. I'm constantly mindful of that, like where I am, who's there. Like, I want people to feel safe and sexy. But Naomi was like, you're not playing like yourself. And you know what? People were dancing. I echoed it out, and I really, I never do a hard drop. I echoed the music out, and and I, t- I was like, listen, Naomi reminded me that I am not playing like me. Let's party. She was right. And I threw on the hardest hip-hop record that I believe was ever made. This song called Annie Up by M.O.P., some guy straight from Brownsville, Brooklyn. <laughs> you could feel the floor moving. Like, people went crazy. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she was right. Yeah. This is a moment. 
And in that moment, we went through that. We went through Jay. We, I, I played Mob Deep, like shook ones in the White House, and the room was like, Wah! it was crazy. By the time we were talking about this at dinner last night, by the time I threw on swag surfing, to see everybody swag surfing in the White House was like this beautiful experience. Now, when we set the scene, we're in the East Room. So, we're in the East Room. So, the yellow curtains. Yes, the, the curtains. Field, the red Martha rug. Washington on the wall. Right. <laughs> the red carpet the going down the hallway. <laughs> and this place is just bumping. bumping. You're just, just blowing oh it out. My. So, so, the flip side is one of my buddies who, you know, he was upstairs in their residence area. He said, dude, every, every song you played, the president was like, should I go downstairs? Because it sounds like a party. And the first lady was like, nah, it's just, you know, it's it's probably the same old. Man, when he stepped off that elevator and his shirt was open, <laughs> his sleeves were rolled up, he didn't know what he was walking into. He stepped off and all you heard was someone say, he's here. Went crazy. And all of a sudden, he just started dancing. And I thought Chicago house music. And it was just, to be a part of an experience like that, right. oh my gosh, man, never forget. Well, what are you thinking? Are you out of body? Are you just like, holy cow, this this is happening. I am here. They are listening to my music. And I, I just, what, what's that like? So that usually doesn't hit me until after the set is over. You're locked in, in, the, in moment, the moment. I'm in, in the moment, I'm, I'm reading. You don't really have time. If you're a good DJ, you don't have time to... Um, to really worry about how great you are or what you're doing. You I'm watching like the body language. So if, if I'm at a party and you're not moving or if you kind of looking at me funny, I'm I'm trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You, I always zero in on that one person. Mm-hmm. How do I get you to dance? Mm-hmm. That's what I want to know. How do I get you to smile? How do I get you to dance? And and I'll fig- I'll figure it out, man. You're it's, reading the room. Totally. You feel, you did you feel pressure? No, no. No I'm pressure. Really good, man. I'm really good. I, I know that. No pressure, man. I've been to your party. <laughs> Everybody's dancing. There's no no slow no, moment. No, it's it's, no, it's no never pressure, like man. that. No pressure. No so, pressure. okay, so how do you when do you come up with a playlist? Like what's what's your what's your process? So parties at eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock, ten o'clock, two in the afternoon. When do you what what's your flow? So I don't I don't work on sets at all. I, I really do DJ just based on who's in front of me. And there are songs that I'll play to see if like, look, if, if if it's a crowd that wants to hear Motown, if I play, if I test the waters with, like, Stevie Wonder, I wish. And if people are feeling it, oh, I know that they're ready for, like, a Motown vibe. Right. If I'm testing the water to see if they're ready for hip-hop, you can do that with any Jay-Z song. Like, not the, you know, I don't play the Empire State of Mind record. Like, that's a little hokey, you know, to me. But, like, the record with Pharrell, um, I just want to love you. Give it to me. Give me like if you play that and that beat comes on and people are dancing. Oh, so they're ready for all of that. Like there, there are certain songs that you can play and you can see. Like if you play Hall and Notes in a in you know in, you know pretty much an African American party and they get it, that means you can play everything. Where which Hall and Notes song? If you play, I can't go for that, hmm. and they understand it. Oh, then I can play David Bowie. I can play all of that. And I can tell when people want to hear like something different. If people are dancing to it, that means they get it. They understand music and they want to go. But then there are some times where I'll play a record and no one moves to it. It's like, okay, that's not that crowd. I need to play. I need to stay mainstream. And I'll pretty much build my set around it. 
while while DJing. Oh, amazing! So, you just so, sort of feel it. Yeah, as the, no, you don't, I'm, pre, you I'm don't literally pre-plan like it. twenty songs ahead of everyone. Okay, because I need the songs to to build. Uh, you know, I don't like the hard drop or anything. I want you to. It's like a being on a roller coaster. It's a musical roller coaster. I want to take you places. I want you to go. I don't want to scare you. I don't want to push you there. Like I want you to flow into it. Where, you know, someone said, um, "Man, it was a picture from from the Mets. I can't even remember his name, but this was years ago when I first started DJing." And the guy looked at me and he said, "Your transitions are so seamless." Mm-hmm. Like, I can never tell when that song is ending and when the next song is coming Because on. you only play portions of songs. You I don't go portions. start to the, start to no, finish. No, no, no. You I just take a that. chunk and then you just keep it moving. And it then you force the people to stay out there. A lot of times, right? A lot of right? times. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of DJs who kind of have ADD, where they'll just keep going extremely flat, fast with songs. But for me, it's like um, I pick the best part of the song that I believe the best part of the song is. And I try to give you two verses at least. Right. Like that's important. Two verses, right. two choruses, so you can feel it. Unless I'm using a song to transition into another record. So there are some songs where I'll just go into it because of wordplay. So like wordplay could be like something, something. This is funky, 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 funky. And then all of a sudden, I'm bringing in James Brown because it's funky, and it's it just feels good. And that's something that I learned from a. Uh, a DJ who passed away named DJ AM. Mm. Everything to him was about wordplay. Like he always found those words from one song that would transition into the next song. And it was just beautiful to to experience. Like it was like, man, it made you dance, but you also paid attention until he was playing. I'm thinking of D nice parties and it's always moving. It's flowing. It's never been like all of a sudden, no, and everyone gets off the floor. No, we don't. And that's right. (laughs) Don't want to ever do that. No, you don't. Have you ever, had a party where folks just uh, just stop feeling it. And then what do you do? Yeah, that's a tough one. So usually that happens if I if I'm playing like a wedding. I don't like weddings. Like weddings are not Especially if thing. they're half a million dollars. I mean, come on. I, you know, it's not that part. You know what it is? <laughs> there are certain weddings where you can just go off and be you and they hire you for you. But then there are certain weddings where it's like um, – well, these are the songs that I need you to get in. The songs that I don't like are songs, I don't like line dance records. Because a line dance song, like The Wobble, it's great in theory. Everyone will get on the dance floor and dance, but the moment you turn the line dance song off, no matter what you play, everyone exits the dance floor. I hate those records. As a DJ, sonically, they sound good. feels good when you play them. As a DJ, it's the worst thing to play. But people ask for them. They request them. Normally, I don't even take requests mm. because if you came to hear me, then you you came to hear me. Like, if you want a jukebox, you can stay at home and show my age. I don't even have jukeboxes anymore. <laughs> jukebox? Anybody know the jukebox? <laughs> but if you want to play your own iPod. You, have, you want your iPod <laughs> going on. You want a playlist. You create your own. But right. you came for an experience, and right. you should respect the talent. Like, if you're going to see... The OJs perform. You're not going to stand in front of them like, hey, play this song next. No. Not that I'm the OJs. But OJs. <laughs> if you went to a Beyonce concert. <laughs> old school references. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. No, I love my old school. Man. It's good stuff, right? Basic, that's the basis on which today's music is built. I, I, that's what I tell my kids when I'm playing my old stuff. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> They're like, turn this off. It's too slow. <laughs> um, what makes you what, what makes you good? What do you think makes you good? What makes me good? Um, 
I don't have a fear of um, of uh, failure, like at all. I've never worked for anyone. Never had a job other than what I do. I've always been a creative person since you know since high school. You know, and so like being unafraid to fail to me makes me good. Take me inside the booth. Yes. Take me inside the booth. Give me the energy that you feel when you have it right. When it's just bumping. So man, when it's when it's right. For one, I don't like anyone in the booth because it's it's a distraction for one. Like mm-hmm. I don't like people dancing and looking up and seeing me, the DJ or any other DJ, in the middle of a conversation with someone else and not engage with the crowd. Right, focus. So I like to be by myself yeah. and I like to move. And it's I remember when I first started DJing, there was a couple. She the wife was a professor at NYU husband was a firefighter and when there were only 10 people that came out to my party they would stand in front of the dj booth and just watch me and then one day she sent me a a message on um on twitter direct message that said we come because we your your vibe is so infectious because you look like you're enjoying yourself and that makes us come out to party with you no matter who's there and this was early on i wish i knew where they were now what a what a big difference. They came out when there were just 10 people there. Now, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm playing a Zulu ball next week for 20,000 people. So, um, but when I'm when I'm in that booth, man, it's I'm focused, you know, like no one talking to me, strictly paying attention to the people. Mm-hmm. As I said before, I'm always 20 songs ahead of everyone trying to lead you to a place and and I dance. If you can't make yourself dance, you can't dance. I mean, what what good is it? The party's not hot if you're not out there moving. And I'm not a good dancer. <laughs> but I just feel the, the music and I feel the rhythm and it's... You're having fun. I'm having a great time, man. Yes. That's the ultimate, right? Yes. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Not at all. Honestly. Let's go back to the very beginning. Childhood. Yeah. You're born at Harlem Hospital. Born in Harlem Hospital. 135th Street and Lenox Ave. Lenox right? Avenue. Yeah. And you grew up in the Bronx. What was, childhood, up, what was childhood like? Harlem in the Bronx. I grew up. Um, so childhood. I never even talked about this in front of my mom. So, yeah. No, childhood, she was there, actually. Actually, she was there. Um, childhood was it was awesome, man. Like when you are when you're from the inner city and you grow up without having much, you don't even realize that's what's happening. Right. You know, you make do with what you have. You're happy. And I was a happy kid. You know, I, you know, I loved art, um, loved songwriting. Since I was like 13, um, wasn't really good at it, but it's just what I loved. I loved being creative. Um, and uh, growing up in Harlem was different than growing up in the Bronx. Growing up in Harlem, which were, you know, my younger years, um, we lived on 118th Street and 7th Avenue. And that was great. Um, you know, some some fond memories. I remember the lemonade stand on the corner. <laughs> that lasted for like one day. <laughs> I just remember this officer walking down the street with a quarter, like buying lemonade for me. Right. And I was like, this is for the birds. <laughs> like, I don't want to sell lemonade. <laughs> like, this is, you know, and you know, I tried a lot of different things, man. You know, right. moved to the Bronx and tried becoming like a drug dealer. It didn't work for me, man. Mm-hmm. Just out of conscious. And he was like, mm-hmm. I don't want to sell you something that's not going to be good for you. So that just wasn't for me, you know. Was that somebody else's idea or yours? I think it was the idea of being in the streets, you know, yeah. like seeing most of the drug dealers, like most of during my time, all of the hip hop guys were rapping about a lifestyle that really didn't belong to them. It was really about the drug dealers. 
you know, so if they were rapping in, you know, in the mid eighties about driving this fancy car, well, nobody had a car. The hustler dudes were driving cars and they would meet up at Willie Burgers in Harlem. So everything that rappers were rapping about was really like this drug dealer lifestyle. It was aspirational. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and um, I kind of wanted that because we grew up, you know, you know, I didn't have like much growing up, but in seeing those guys with the things and, you know, these possessions that they had. Yeah. I mean, how could you not want that, you know? And then on top of it, it wasn't like my father was around. So I grew up watching a lot of television, a lot of lifestyles of the rich and famous to the Cosby show to, you know, I watched all these things and I wanted that kind of life. I wanted to, you know, be this great father. I wanted, I didn't have any kids at that point, but I was always thinking about it. Like when I grow up, what do I want to be like? You thought about that? No, totally. You dreamt about that? Totally. Wait, would you see yourself as a father with kids? Totally. So because of the absence of like my own dad, you know, I knew that when it, when it happened for me, that I wanted to be this great parent, no matter what. Um, sitting in my room, just wasting my time. Yeah, man. What were you? What were you thinking? Of sitting in the room. We all have those moments we can think back on. So sitting in a room for me, growing up in the Bronx, it, it was more. It was sitting in the bathroom. That was the only place that I had a little peace and quiet because we. Um, I didn't live with my mom at the time, and I was living with my cousin Vanessa and uh, and my great grandmother and my cousin's son and. So crazy when you really look back at the on those days, my cousin was like eighteen years old with like a one year old, and meanwhile I was like twelve, and then my great grandmother was in her sixties, and we all shared this this four hundred square foot. It's no more than four hundred square four hundred square foot apartment, tenement apartment, fifth floor walk up, and um, yeah, it, it just felt like home no matter what. You know, it was. You know, we had credit at the corner store. Like, we knew all of the guys at the bodega. So if we didn't have money to get food, those guys were like, oh, just pay us next week. So it was always like, no matter what, no matter what the circumstances were, I was always surrounded by love. And luckily for me, you know, not becoming a drug dealer wasn't just about not wanting to see someone else suffer. It was because I had these people around me, like, and they're still like my best friends that saw something better, you know, like um, I haven't seen this guy in like over 25 years, but he was the one hustler that had a conscience. Like he, well, you know, he told me like, you know what, this isn't for you here, put this money in your pocket, like do something else. Like you can still hang out with me, but I don't want you to do this. Like I see something else for you. He could, or like my, my best friend, Tony, um, gentleman named Tony Rasan, like literally been my best friend since 1986 who saw something else that was like, dude, you should like, let's do this together. He ended up being my manager and he was a terrible manager, but most amazing friend. <laughs> <laughs> we all have people like that. <laughs> but he was, I mean, he was still, he was a great manager for what it was right. for just in the beginning stages, but to get to that next level, it was really about like, I had to do this for myself, you know, other than that, uh, you know, I probably would have still been with him. But I, I just wanted, I wanted to always be self-empowered. I got a taste of what success felt like right. with our early records with KRS-One right. and Scott LaRock when we put out South Bronx. And even though it was like a small hit, we probably sold 50,000 records. It was a major hit in New York City. So we were doing all these shows and that was the first time I was making like $500 a night. 
it's like 17 years old with $500. Like, come <laughs> on, this was, this was a lot of money. Um, then, you know, we, we signed to a major label, put out records, sold millions of records. I ended up doing my own solo project and then getting Kid Rock signed to his deal with Jive. I worked on two songs on his first album. We toured together. I toured the country, 70 cities with Ice Cube and Too Short and did another tour with Dougie Fresh and Eric B and Rakim. And I had a disagreement with the record company on the direction of like my third project. And because I didn't, the music had changed and like Puff and Big and everything was like a lot more fancy. Mm -hmm. The record company kind of wanted me to rap more like that and more about, you know, bitches and hoes Mm -hmm. and not just do what I did, which, you know, you can't come from KRS-One and Chuck D days. And not that I was that militant in my lyrics. We're socially conscious. But I was socially conscious, especially in certain songs where we talk about things and, um, and because I had, you know, had this disagreement with them, they ended up shelving me. So I couldn't put out any music. The shows were drying up. There were no old school shows, no old school tours. It's like if you weren't hot, you got no, there was no shows coming in. Mm-hmm. So I went from driving a nice car and living on the water and in, in you know, West New York and to where I lost it all. And like now I'm back to like square one. But now I'm a little older. So that was a moment that I was extremely fearful of. Like, like, no, I'm not. What do you mean? Like, I remember this kid walking down the street and he was like, someone was like, yo, that's D nice. And the kid was like, it's not D nice. He always had his hair cut. <laughs> so that, you in said that, that moment, wow. I started shaving my head bald before I actually went bald. Wow. I started shaving my own head bald because I was like, I can't afford a haircut. I can't wow. have kids looking at me like this. Wow. And, um, you really knew you'd lost it. No, I, I lost it all. Man. Yeah, and, um, yeah. But it was the best thing ever because yeah. I would have still been an old school rapper right now, probably trying to shop a demo. <laughs> but because I lost it all at such a young age, I was like 23 years old. I was forced to start all over again right. and to reinvent myself. Right. And that's where that, you know, being fearless and like, I don't really care I, I want you to like what i'm doing i want you to appreciate what i'm doing yeah. but this is still my life you know like and if you don't disagree with it it's okay yeah. if i believe in it that's all that matters you know right. and if i win with it cool I'm, i don't need you to pat me on the back just come out and dance a little and like <laughs> come on have a good time like and um but you become self-possessed not only with failure and success but with time right yeah. when you, you mature you know, I had to learn some hard lessons, man. And, and uh, one of the hard lessons was, you know, I, I, I put the onus on my ex to be the, the provider because I was I, I didn't realize I was in this deep depression. You know, I mean, just imagine having fame and then losing it all and having to walk down the street with people pointing at you like, hey. So I kind of, you know, I stayed away, stayed in the house and I didn't feel creative. And um it was at the end of that relationship, which kind of forced me to get out and follow my heart again. But at the time I was just struggling. I, this was after the after this stop, after I stopped making music and right. there were no more fans. I had to figure this out. And it took about seven, eight years. And the moment that I got into web development, I was like, man, this makes me feel good. I'm still able to be creative. Um, I'm going to run with this. But my buddies didn't they really didn't want me to have a fair share of the company 
So I decided to just leave the company. I was like, I'm going to start my own business. I had no money, nothing. Dell computers at the time were, they had like this Dell leasing program. I leased my own computer, I leased the software, Photoshop and Flash. And I went to the library. I downloaded like source code and started to reverse engineer to understand exactly what this stuff do and what it did. And all of a sudden I became a programmer and I built websites for everyone from any Linux to Luther to, so this is pre DJ. And so from voice of men. So my clients were J records, which was owned by Clive Davis and, you know, Arista. Um, I was like one of their lead programmers and one of the lead programmers for, for Motown. I was doing mainly, especially like on the urban side, like Mm -hmm. pretty much all of the Motown stuff, all of the J records. I mean, I did some really, some really some cool projects, but one project in particular was, um, was a, a clothing company. It was men's underwear. And the guys, they had delivered these images that just to me, they weren't great. And I asked them to pad the budget a bit, like, yo, just put a little extra in there for a photographer. Instead of going and hiring a photographer, I went and took the money and I bought a camera. <laughs> I bought a Canon camera, like an EOS 3. And I hired a, a model and I went out in Central Park. This dude was like half naked <laughs> in the middle of Central Park photographing this guy. And I used those images on um, on the site. And that was my kind of entry into photography. They weren't like great images, but they were beautiful for that particular project. And and because I wasn't 100% satisfied with that, I ended up going to school for photography to ICP, which is here in New York. And that's what I see when I mean, like, um, what I mean when I say I'm unafraid. It's like, if it feels good to me, like I want to learn more, I want to learn more about it. So I ended up being a programmer and a photographer. And because of those things, the programming, I was able to buy better cameras. Photography was great because I was able to create my own blog and send these, you know, I would send out these weekly newsletters to like people like LA Reed. And Mm -hmm. even though they didn't, you know, they didn't hire me for everything, but I had, I was smart enough to, create the analytics. So I was able to read that stuff. So I knew who was opening it. And I was like, wow, they are paying attention to my photography. And the next thing you know, I got a call from Tyra Banks. I was like, Hey, you know, um, I saw your images on your, on your website. I would love for you to just follow me around for a day. Wow. And ended up doing that. And, and that turned into me shooting for a talk show. And then that turned to me in, into being um, a feature photographer on America's next top model. But it all started from just being unafraid, like just doing what I love. And, and I've been able to have like a blessed life to to uh, be able to do all of the things that I, that I love. Fearless. Did music find you or did you find music? Do you remember your first contact with with a, a record that that spoke to you? The first song, the first one you bought, the first one you listened to? So. The first song that really um, I thought about this, it was uh, Teddy Pendergrass. My my aunt, my aunt Faye. They used to have these records. Um, she lived in in uh, Manhattan, Overlook Terrace, and I remember seeing all of these records that she had. And it wasn't even the sound of the music; it was just like Teddy with his shirt open. I think it was the TP album cover. But it just looked cool. With the gold chains yeah, and all that. I remember that. It just looked cool. And then, yeah. you know, my aunt was driving like a Cadillac Seville, and they were always playing like classic records. But 
that Teddy Pendergrass record always stood out to me. The record cover? The or record The record cover. Or the music itself? Not even the music itself. It was really the record cover that really I was fascinated with this. And then when I listened to it, when I finally listened to the music, it was um, it was just this soul music that was just moving. Now, fast forward, the first record that I ever purchased, which is so crazy to me right now because he's one of my best friends. The first record that I saved up to buy on my own was um, The Show by Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. And I wasn't even rapping then. That was the first one. That was the very first record. So the fact that I was on the phone with Dougie yesterday yeah. and I do all of these shows with Doug, and right. like, it's crazy to me. Like The first record that I ever purchased was that. How old were you? I was um, 14 years old. I bought that record and it was a, another old school record called One Bad Apple Don't Spoil a Whole Damn Bunch. Some of these <laughs> little kids, I remember that. <laughs> Went, but what was it about the show that spoke to you? Was it the beatbox, the whole, you know, was, the mouth, was, all that stuff with his mouth? What, what no, was it? it was just the drums. It was Slick Rick, really. Rick just had this. Because I grew up in the 80s, so rappers didn't sound like Slick Rick. You know, mm-hmm. like, Melly Mel didn't sound like Rick. Pebbly Poo didn't sound like Melly Mel. It was like all these old school rappers, but Rick was Jake. He was just this amazing storyteller. But he would do these weird things. He wasn't I'm as so weird back then. With you. Is that the one? We're talking about the, right, the same guy? The show? Yes. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Right. What was well, that? He was singing. Like, he was just, yeah. he had the British accent. And he was just using words that right. most Americans, who calls someone a crumb? Right. Like, <laughs> that's like a straight English thing. Right. It was weird. It was but weird, it was interesting. It was, right? it was interesting. It was right. fun. Man, I remember buying that. And then the first, um, the first album I ever purchased was um, Run DMC, Racing Hell. And that changed my life. That was when I knew I wanted to be like, I wanted to, I wanted to be a B-boy. I wanted to be in hip hop. So then you got on the mic yourself. No, I didn't get on the mic. Did you do this at home? Did you? I did this at home. I didn't get on the mic for a very long time, even after we had um, with um, early success of our record. So I didn't initially start out as a rap artist. I started out as a beatboxer. Okay. So with um, Karis One and DJ Scott Rock and our group Boogie Down Productions. How'd you meet those guys? So Scott LaRock, remember I was telling you the story of my cousin and my great-grandmother and living in the tenement apartment building. My cousin's boyfriend lived with us as well. Um, And he was a security guard at the men's shelter in the Bronx called the Franklin uh, Men's Shelter. Karis One lived there. DJ Scott LaRock was a social worker. And my cousin was a security guard. I've always loved to cook. And looking back, it wasn't really me cooking. It was me opening up a can of... Uh, corned beef hash and just warming it up and making some rice took my cousin some food and he was like hey I want to introduce you to someone and he took me into Scott LaRock's office and was like hey this is my little cousin he loves to write songs and Scott looked at me and said hey you're going to be the LL Cool J of my my group and just like that I mean I'm not making this up he hadn't heard a thing you wrote hadn't heard a thing he just felt it like no you're going to be the LL Cool J of my group love at first sight absolutely wow and that guy took me under his wings, under his wings, and and that was it, you know. And he's a legendary know. figure in hip hop. I mean, yeah, this he passed guy passed away before he could really, right. you know, like have the kind of like uh, notoriety that was due to him because he, you know, I mean, we did some groundbreaking things with our group, right. you know, and um, hip hop was still in its infancy, and right. to do what we ended up doing, like uh, you know, selling millions of records, some kids from the Bronx, you know, we didn't do too bad. You look at the video for <clears throat> self destruction. 
Look at the artists in there. KRS-One, Kumo D, Dougie Fresh, MC Light, Heavy D, Public Enemy. You see Chuck and you see um, Flavor Flay. Mm -hmm. um, what, what was that like, putting that video together? So the song itself... Um, and you're in there rapping a couple of verses, I was in too. there. I was rapping. I produced the record. It's all my music. Um, I produced that when I was 18 years old. Um, it was a song we... we uh, there was a concert in Nassau Coliseum back in the day when Nassau Coliseum was still around. I'm aging myself, seriously. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, a kid lost his life over a gold chain. He was with his girlfriend. Someone robbed him and killed him. And we decided that, you know, enough with the violence, you know, and KRS had this idea of putting this kind of group together called the Stop the Violence Movement. And he wanted it to be all of the guys from the East Coast who, you know, we pretty much had all of the hits at the time. You know, I mean, Ice-T was out, but the East Coast kind of at that time was like, you mean, you had Public Enemy, you had all these guys. Mm -hmm. And um, it was KRS-One's idea to put this group together. And KRS, you know, he trusted me to come up with a track that would be suitable for this this group effort and um you know I, I i made the beat for it i slept under the mix board for two weeks we recorded that record and it ended up selling nearly a million copies um we shot the um video for it in harlem uh, mount morris park mm. you know in various places but sure a bulk of it was in that area right. um schaumburg center and like and uh, i mean it was just fun man and we had no idea that we were creating something that would still live on i mean yeah this is 89, man, right. it's 30 years old. That's incredible. Yeah, Martin Luther King, um, wow. MLK Day. Um, yeah, it was 30 years old, man. So to have something that, unfortunately, it still resonates. Um, how, 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 music, does, how does it resonate today? I mean, there's still like a lot of violence going on in, in our communities. Um, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it's a different kind of violence, but like, you know, growing up in the 80s, man, like, it's almost like you, you being a part of the violence was was just necessary for survival. You know, when I turned 16 years old, the first thing that one of my best friends gave me was a, a 22 caliber pistol, pearl handle pistol. That was a gift when I turned 16 years old. You know, it was, it was almost like the violence was expected of like some of the guys growing up in the hood that way, you know. So and um I can't really relate to, I don't even want to pretend like I can relate to some of what's going on with like this generation because I don't, I don't live it. I don't live, I'm not in the hood like that anymore, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm seeing things from afar. I don't live in it. So I can't really describe the type of violence, but there, I get a lot of text messages from, from younger kids, uh, not text messages, but like DM direct mm -hmm. messages where the kids are talking about how like being inspired by the music, by the music from back then, being inspired by, self-destruction in particular and another song called stop the violence mm -hmm. um being inspired by my career mm -hmm. the longevity of it mm -hmm. and it's kind of like helping like kids see and want more you know and it's you know i'm just glad that music that we the music we made back then still resonates in a positive way too right. with with um, another generation you rapped like a couple verses on that song I rap one verse and one then verse? I was on the chorus. Yeah. yeah. How's that verse go? Could you, could you, man, you, could you, you Teddy Riley, man? Could you spit it out right now? Jeez, man. Let me see. Let me see. Um, it's time to stand together in unity. Because if not, then yo will soon to be self destroyed, unemployed. The rap race will be lost without a trace or a clue but what to do is stop the violence and kick the science down the road that we call eternity. 
where knowledge is formed and you learn to be self-sufficient, independent, to teach to each is what rap intended. But society wants to invade, so do not walk this path that they lay. I have literally, I have not said those lyrics. It was a struggle to try to even remember them. But that's the lyric for self, the verse for self-destruction. But you wrote that. Yeah, I wrote that. You meant that. I meant that. And you still feel it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, and I meant it. I felt it when, I mean, I was an 18-year-old kid at the time, like, living in that situation, you know? It still applies. Yeah, it still applies, man. Wow, I haven't said that in forever, man. Socially conscious hip-hop. Man. It has a place. Yeah, I got to say that again when I get out of it, when I leave here, I'm going to repeat those lyrics again. Because it means something. No, totally. Yeah. Because it it was like, for one, I was 18 years old. You know, at the time we weren't really making a lot of money. So, you know, like everything that we made actually meant something. It was what we were going through. And, um, man, to have that verse that, remember, everyone else on the song was much older than, than right. I was at the time. You know, right. so Chuck D is older, KRS, and Kumo D. But I was speaking, I was the voice of the youth. And, um, yeah, was, and, and that's why that still means a lot to me. It was, a, it was a fight to get on that song, even though I was producing it. But I had to. I had to jump on it and speak from that perspective. What do your kids think when they see videos of you back then? There's the video... The movie I'm gonna get you sucker where you're yeah. playing you're you're actually playing on some turntables some fake turntables right the one with around the mama where you're smiling <laughs> it's hilarious it's 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 yeah. a scene with Keenan Ivory Wayans and you're back yeah. there you're this kid what do your daughters think when they see that my daughters laugh man my daughters especially my little one she's like it's not you it doesn't even look like you dad that's and not you flat top yeah fade but I, I, it took my oldest daughter a while to like really appreciate who I am and what I've accomplished. And to feel inspired by it. So, like, now she'll look back at the videos or she'll send me a screenshot. Like, Dad, you're annoying. My my friends Googled you. And they're, like, sending me these messages. It's so annoying. <laughs> well, like, I think, like, um, one day, like, I was driving driving her. Um, she was, this was before she went to Spelman. So she was going to school in a uh, Catholic school. And I uh, picked her up and some of her girlfriends. And I happened to look in the rearview mirror. And it was, like, these little girls just looking at me, like, <laughs> like, your dad is cool. Like, he's done some cool things, but in that, it didn't hit my daughter. And then one day, which is hilarious, she'd probably kill me for saying it. One day, she finally came out to a party. Now she was a Spelman student then, so of course she knew all of the big things that I was doing. But it was in this party, and she was dancing, and everyone's going crazy. And it's actually the party that I'm doing tonight. It's called the Originals. Like five DJs, and we all all legendary DJs, and the music is just so soulful. And then all of a sudden, my daughter started crying. She was like, "Dad, this just feels so good to party with you and like this music." And I was like, "You know, she was twenty one at the time, so I, you know, I was like, maybe you, you probably had one too many glasses of wine, but I'm gonna go with it." And she was like, "No, this is just so emotional, and it feels so good. And I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you." And I was like, "Wow." <laughs> Well, it was a great moment, though, man. It was a great moment. That's spectacular. Yeah. Your daughters great. are everything to you. My daughters are everything to me. You know, like, yeah, everything. What's it mean to be a dad? Man, I don't even know if I look at it from a traditional dad perspective because I, I mean, I am dad and I am an authority figure and I do, I want the respect that every father should have, every parent should have. Um, but I'm a provider and I do want, I want my kids to have, like, Amazing experience, not too over the top, but I also don't want them to have the same kind of lifestyle that I had growing up. You know, um, 
you know, it's important. You know, I didn't know, I didn't even understand the importance of vacation because we didn't go on vacation, you know, but like now I'm like, man, I'm work six months and I'm going on vacation twice a year. I'm going and it feels good. My kids understand that, you know, like in August, I don't work. I, I only work places that I want to take my daughter, my youngest daughter in particular, my oldest daughter, she'll go anyway. But my youngest one, like, I feel like you got to dedicate that time to them. So we, we, we call it daddy daughter month. So for August, I only go places that are kin fr- kid friendly, and I'm and I will only allow myself four events for the month. And it just so happens that all those events happen in Mother's Venue, which is not a bad place to That's be. It's kind of convenient. Oh my gosh, it's like the best thing ever. What place is better than that? <sighs> I mean, seriously, on earth, right? No place is better than. It's that. unbelievable. And the crazy thing is, as soon as I touch down in the venue, so this year or last year, eighteen, Troy brought his family. And we rented a spot, same place. So I didn't have gigs. <laughs> as soon as I arrived, it was like the phone calls were coming. D, it was HBO, it was VET. Wow. And then I got this one call that was like, so we heard you on the island. And former first family, like for you to play this pool party. And I was like, I would love to, but I have my daughter. Oh. Wait a minute. Bring the her. first family. Yeah, they were like, bring her. So the so I'm like, wow. You, you you turned down the first family. Did I hear that right? I wasn't trying to. I you wanted said to you do, have your daughter. But I had to let them know I ah. have my daughter. Okay. That wasn't a no. You were trying to bring her. I was actually trying to. That's, I wanted them to a, say, bring her. That was a plea. Yes, that gotcha. was a plea. That was, gotcha. you know, um, and they said, no, bring your family. So I called my oldest daughter. I got to give her respect for this, though, because she made her own decision. It's a terrible decision, if you ask me. Daughter's going to law school. Time she's you know about to start law school, called up and said, "Hey babe, so I have to DJ for for the Obamas." He said, "Bring my bring my family. You want to come?" And she said, "What's the date, Dad? I can't make it. That's that's I have orientation that day, law school." And I was like, "Hey, they're both attorneys, law professor. Like you may want to." And he was the he's the former president. You may want to come. She did not budge. Really? She's like, Dad, knowing you, I'm quite sure that I'll meet them, but I have to go to orientation. Good for her. And she didn't come. I was mad at her. I was like, are you kidding me? I don't know. That, that's that's kind of a strong decision. That's, that that's, a, strong that's a power move, right? She made, she made her decision, and it yeah. worked for her. You know, yeah. My little one, on the other hand, <laughs> she was we, we went over to their house. She was in the pool. She was away from me for like two hours. She was, you know, I mean... I'm only saying Michelle, just so you understand what we're talking about. I don't want to... Actually, let me say this. I love Michelle Obama. She's amazing. She's amazing. She has a way of... And I think a lot of us use, you know, talk to them on like a first name basis because they are so like, they're so warm and welcoming. And it's like, no, don't call me Mr. President. Like, no, Barack. And it's like... He said that. Yes, bro. Like, I I saw Michelle. I saw them. Three weeks... No, a month ago, I was doing an event for Eric Holder. It was Eric's wife's 60th birthday party. And Eric wanted me to DJ. He heard me at the White House. And he was like, I need him. So I'm there DJing. And the former first lady came over. And how could you not call her Michelle? She came over. She put a drink down next to me. was like, D. Oh, and I had both of her hands out like wow. that. 
I can't say hello first, uh, hello former first lady. I'm like no, it's like hey Michelle. It's like how could you? How could you not? It's like and then you know like and even with my daughter when we're in a vineyard, it's like you know you don't want to ask him for a picture. No matter how many pictures you have, you don't want to ask. And as we were leaving, the former president was like, hey, man, let's take a picture together. Where's your phone? Come on. And then he wow. grabs my daughter. And wow. She stood right in front of him. And then we're taking pictures. Wow. Something that will, will, you know, inspire her in the future. I don't think she fully, I mean, she knows who Barack is from the stories. But, you know, they don't talk about it that much at school anymore. You know, like, but she, the books are all around. And she knows who the former first lady is. But I, I think one day it's going to hit her like, wow, I was swimming with her. And and here's how incredible they are. I, I did her um, her last book party from the tour when she was at Barclays Center. So mm-hmm. I DJed that party for her. And we're standing in in uh, standing in line to wait to in the picture line. So Reverend Sharpton was in front of me. He went, hugged her. I'm up next. As I started walking to her, she was like, D, nice. <laughs> and the first thing she said was, how's that beautiful daughter of yours? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen her in six months. I hadn't seen, you know, the former first lady in six months. And she's the fact good. that she still remembered my daughter says so much about them, man. That, like when they meet people and they, and, and they like people, right. it's a genuine thing. Right. And, you know, and it's it's just impactful, man. You know? yeah. Says yeah. a lot about your daughter, too, by the way. Oh, she's awesome. She's spectacular. Though. She walks into a room and, and uh, you know, it's nothing like being dad to some great kids, you know, they light it up. Final thought here. Um, What's next for you? Producing, producing. um, I I said earlier, I moved to LA for filmmaking and and documentary series in in, in particular, you know, I love, I love docs. You know, I love what you do. I love Mm -hmm. the art of storytelling. That's what hip hop was to me. Mm -hmm. So it was, it's um, I've always had this dream for like the last 10 to 15 years. And, you know, before DJ and I, I wanted to move into film production and I was kind of afraid of taking that step, you know, because I was doing well with my web company and then DJ and took off. And then, man, I, I just woke up one day and uh, I had this desire to tell stories and tell our stories, you know, like and tell these stories of hip hop culture and and not from someone standing on the outside. Like I was there, mm-hmm. you know, I was there and there's so many incredible stories to tell. And, you know, I have an op- opportunity now with Netflix and, you know, and I'm trying to run with it and, and to tell all of these amazing hip hop stories, wow. you know, so documentaries, you know, and hopefully, you know, some of my friends are huge producers. And when they found out that I was moving to LA, the first thing, one guy, I mean, he produced some really big movies. He said, um, all right, dude, now you're coming to my house every Sunday for dinner. And now we need to get you on these movies. Now we need to start producing stuff. And so I said to you, man, like, I, I couldn't do any of this without other people believing and other people just pushing. Like, no, this is where you need to be. Like, I see it in you. And I moved to L.A. to make that into that uh, leap into film production, man. You know, so that's what's next for me. That's going to be great. Yeah. Wow. Good for you, man. Appreciate you, bro. Appreciate you. This was awesome. It's fantastic. Man. Real good stuff, man. Did you get some good stuff? I mean, what? Why do we got to go? Why do we got to leave?